When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, Elizabeth Bick, the scientific image detective. And how air pollution can form in cities. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up, reporter Adam Levy has made contact with a scientific sleuth. Elizabeth Bick spends her days reading academic papers. Well, actually, reading might not be the right word. I can indeed scan hundreds of papers sometimes a day because I just look at the images. Uh, I'm just like a a four-year-old scanning a book for for the pictures. Elizabeth is a science consultant based in Sunnyvale, California, and she's staring at pictures for a reason, to look for patterns. She's hunting for duplicated images, sometimes which have been flipped, rotated or digitally manipulated. These can suggest mistakes or malpractice on the part of researchers. And Elizabeth shares her finds with journals, as well as by posting publicly. Initially just a hobby, Elizabeth became hooked and is now a full-time image sleuth. I gave her a call to find out why and how she does what she does. Once you see those patterns... It's, it's really hard to not see it anymore. You just see the same cell, you know, four or five or sometimes ten times in the same photo. Just to see the same thing over and over again in the same photo is just sometimes just hilarious to see that. What I have found when looking at examples of this kind of thing is that when I just see the example, I am hopeless. And then when the suspect area is circled or indicated in some way, it just feels so obvious. And I can't believe I didn't see it in the first place. <laughs> that is, that is, I guess, my experience. Uh, but yeah, it is hard to explain because in the beginning I thought, well, this is so obvious. And I would send it to a journal editor and they were like, I don't see it. I'm like, well, that's ob- it's obvious, right? And they're like, no, I don't see it. And then I draw these boxes around it and then they're like, oh, now I see it. So I realized that maybe not everybody sees it the same way as I do. And I need to point it out. And now I understand that you're doing this not primarily as a job, just doing it for for the work itself. So, so what is your motivation to be 
going through, as you say, hundreds and hundreds of papers. The reason I do that is because so if a science paper has some problems, other people might try to replicate that result, but they might find that, that it's impossible to do. And if that is because the science paper was maybe fabricated or falsified, then that is a really good reason to flag that paper so that other people are warned that there is a concern about that paper. So I find it very rewarding. I feel I'm sending out a message that there's potentially something wrong with papers and helping others to to see that as well. And I understand it's it's not just standalone papers sometimes that you uncover issues with. You've sometimes uncovered problems in, in groups of papers by the same academic groups or authors. I have found several clusters of papers that were all authored by the same research group. So sometimes I might find uh, two or three or 10 uh, papers. And in one time, I even found 100 papers, all by the same author, and they all had image problems. So, So yeah, some of these cases can be quite big. Now, you're not the only person who does this kind of work, but you're unusual in that you you do this quite openly under your own name. Yes, I do. Um, Most people who do this work are posting under a pseudonym. And that is because this work can be quite risky. I'm, of course, criticizing other people, but a researcher might maybe, you know, not like that so much and and decide to sue me. So I need to be very careful in how I word my concerns about a paper. So I'll just say, these two images look remarkably similar. Can you please explain? And hopefully that will... Keep me safe. <laughs> One thing that has been a, a source of criticism is that you publish your findings publicly. You know, you go to certain social media um, to talk about the things you've uncovered. Is there a risk that this approach could be counterproductive, potentially causing actual problems further down the line for investigations? It might be. So um, when I flag papers, then that could leave the authors with the opportunity to destroy the evidence. But on the other hand, of the 800-something papers that I've reported in 2014 and 2015, only 30% of them have been either corrected or retracted, and the rest is just not touched upon. So they're still out in the open with, with their duplicated images. So it's very frustrating that it seems that journals or institutes are not really acting upon these allegations. Uh, so I tried to do it, you know, the official way. But now I'm posting these things online because it's it's faster. I feel I'm flagging these things. And at least I've warned people in a fast way. Do you get, I guess, frustrated by how long these things sometimes take to resolve? Yes, I do. It's, it, is frust- <laughs> <laughs> it is very frustrating when I find these, these problems sometimes in seconds where I see a duplicated background or a duplicated photo. And it seems so obvious to me. And I report these things to to the journals and then I just don't hear anything back for years. And that's when I take things sometimes to Twitter and say, you know, guys, this this is a problem. You should have looked at it. But yeah, some people have uh, called that trial by Twitter and I can see that. But sometimes nothing has been done, even though I reported it five years ago. This paper is still out there and... Everybody thought it was fine. Now, I think many people might hear about this and hear about someone who's literally going through and looking at images 
on a personal level and think that's quite an old fashioned way to do it. You know, we've got artificial intelligence and image analysis tools now. Why, why is this something that a human is still doing? Because it's really hard to, uh, to computerize this. I don't know. I, I like to think of the voice recognition of 10 years ago. Um, I would say yes. And the computer said, you, you said no. I'm like, no, I said yes. And <laughs> image recognition is even even more complex. It's much harder than people think. But having said that, that will happen. Do you think as the software improves, you'll be out of work? You won't have anything to do? <laughs> no, I, I think it will take a while uh, before such software is completely up and running. And, and there's still going to be the need for a human reviewing the results similarly to plagiarism uh, checkers that are widely used in scientific publishing a human is still needed to decide that this was an okay reuse of an image that was elizabeth bick to read more about her work check out the profile of her in this week's nature you'll also find a news piece detailing a brand new cross-industry initiative to try and catch image issues before publication there'll be a link to those in the show notes Coming up, we'll be hearing about a chemical mystery surrounding air pollution particles. Now though, it's time for the research highlights, read to you this week by Benjamin Thompson. The Tully monster was a bizarre creature that lived over 300 million years ago, and looked, to me at least, like a cross between a fish, an ocarina, and a sock puppet. This aquatic animal has been the source of debate among paleontologists for decades, as it's been tricky to work out whether it was a vertebrate, an invertebrate, or something in between. To get a better idea, a team of researchers have now studied the different molecular signals found in the fossils of vertebrates and invertebrates from where the Tully monster was discovered. The team found that fossilised soft tissues from invertebrates had relatively high levels of nitrogen-containing compounds, whereas the vertebrate soft tissue had high levels of sulphur-containing compounds. They showed that the molecular makeup of the Tully monster's fossil suggests that the creature was a vertebrate, adding yet another twist in the Tully monster's tail. Dig up that research over at Geobiology. New research has traced record-breaking air pollution levels in Chile to football fans firing up the barbecue during big games. Chile's capital, Santiago, often faces high levels of air pollution in winter, but the city also sees brief spikes in particulate matter that sometimes reach 10 times average levels. To get an idea of what was causing these spikes, a team of researchers looked at the type of particles they contained and when they were detected. They found that these pollution peaks coincided with massive levels of barbecuing taking place while football fans watched the Chilean national team play. While efforts to decrease pollution levels in Santiago have focused on emissions by traffic and industry, the team suggests that sporadic emission sources, such as those created by the cooking habits of football fans, need to be considered as well. Head over to Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics to read more. Sticking with the pollution theme, one thing that you may have seen while scrolling through your social media in the past weeks are pictures of air pollution, or in fact, the lack of. 
Formerly smog-filled cityscapes from Sao Paulo to New Delhi are apparently looking pristine thanks to the near-global lockdown. And it's not just about improving the view. Air pollution is a serious health issue in cities across the world. Of all the various constituents of air pollution, there's one thing called fine particles that are particularly problematic. These are particles between a few nanometers and a few micrometers in size. They're incredibly important for climate, and they also kill an enormous number of people around the globe. So something of order of 7 million deaths per year are attributed to inhalation of fine particle pollution, which is something like 15% of all the mortality around the planet. That's Neil Donahue, an atmospheric chemist at Carnegie Mellon University in the US. Because of these damaging effects of fine particles, researchers like Neil are interested in finding out how they form. Fine particles can enter the air via smoke from burning fuel, or take the form of dust particles blown into the air, but they can also be created in the atmosphere itself. Tiny molecules in the air can react chemically to form small particles, which stick together, growing until they reach the dangerous fine particle size. But getting that big isn't easy. Researchers have struggled to understand why these growing particles don't end up bumping into things and breaking apart again. So most particles are formed, and they're very jittery, right? So they, they bounce around a lot, like my little dog, and they tend to bump into stuff. And, and, and what they bump into is bigger particles, and that, that little particle's gone. But the fine particles we see in our atmosphere clearly haven't bumped themselves into oblivion. The small molecules that form fine particles are able to stay together and grow. And this growth is somewhat unusual. They have a trick up their sleeves that lets them grow up a lot faster than they should. It's this trick that Neil and his colleagues have uncovered and published in Nature this week. It turns out there was a missing puzzle piece, another chemical present in the air that was able to cause rapid growth of fine particles. Fertilizer. (laughs) It turns out it's fertilizer. So ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate forms in the air when ammonia interacts with nitric acid. Researchers knew that these pollutants were present in the air, but they didn't realise the significance they might be having on fine particle formation, and therefore on public health. The traditional understanding here was that, that even though there's ammonia and nitric acid around, it should be in a thermodynamic equilibrium, meaning that there should be very little net going into particles or off of particles. It's sort of in a happy balance. Under certain conditions like cold, the balance disappears and ammonium nitrate forms quickly and particles can rapidly grow. According to Neil, this likely explains a lot of air pollution in cities during winter. Especially when it's quite cold, it's very likely. The next steps for Neil are to better replicate the conditions found in an actual city, with air turbulence and variable concentrations of molecules across the landscape to get a better sense of how this process occurs in the real world. But even without this, this new mechanism is an important part of the puzzle for scientists trying to study and decrease fine particle pollution in cities. For Neil, this work may also inform policy and help us predict what the future state of our atmosphere might be. We know we need to get rid of the pollution. We just did it by shutting down the entire economy. That, that won't persist, unfortunately, but we'll learn something about ways that we can reduce particle levels and particle mass. But we actually don't know that as we, as we clean up the atmosphere, that the, the number of particles is going to continue 
essentially back to the pre-industrial conditions. You know, we're not going back to the Shire and Hobbiton uh, just because we shut down all, you know, all of the fossil fuel combustion or whatever we do. And so that's really where this fits in most to policy discussions is trying to trying to understand you know, what what the future atmosphere will look like. That was Neil Donahue from Carnegie Mellon University in the US. The paper he and I talked about can be found in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's briefing chat time. Uh, so for those who might not be familiar, the Nature Briefing is basically a daily pick of science news and stories delivered to you by email. And for the past few weeks, Nick and I have been combing the briefing for non-corona science news. So uh, Nick, what have you found this time? Well, this time I've been looking at black holes. And tell me, Shamini, how close do you think the closest black hole to Earth is? Oh, um, not very close. Oh, at the, the centre the centre of the galaxy, the centre of the Milky Way. Yeah, I'm thinking of one a bit closer than that. And to be honest, like I was trying to trick you, because uh, whatever you're going to say, as of a few days ago, astronomers reckon they found one even closer. There's a black hole that's been found in a constellation called Telescopium that is about a thousand light years away from us. But black holes are these massive things with a huge gravitational pull. Like, How can we have not noticed that? Yeah, I mean, they are massive, but they also absorb light, so they're kind of invisible. We can only see them if they have an effect on something. And this one is kind of surprising as well, because the particular star system that it was found in, HR 6819, has been studied since the 1980s, but we've never seen this black hole before. So how do we know it's there? So... In this star system, there's two stars, and they move in sort of a puzzling way. And so astronomers started to wonder whether there's a third object there, but they couldn't see anything. But through various measurements and things like that, they've sort of determined that there may be a third object there, and it's a very, very massive one. And so the only explanation really is that it's a black hole. Oh man, I love those kind of astronomical mysteries um but presumably this is still far far enough away that we don't need to panic about uh, being swallowed into nothingness right yeah no it's definitely far away that i don't think we need to worry about it eating us up tomorrow but uh it may indicate that there are many more black holes in the galaxy than previously thought because if we assume that we're not in any way special and there's one that close to us there's probably many more throughout the galaxy that we've not noticed well that's a lot more sort of grand and dramatic than my story for this week which is about worms. About worms. Are they wriggling in the garden? Uh, no, not garden worms. They're little um, sludge worms that are apparently, you can just buy them as fish food. And a bunch of scientists decided to use them to study fluid dynamics and the viscosity of active systems. That's not a bunch of words I ever thought would be in a sentence together. What is going on here? Well, so apparently <laughs> active systems basically means if, if you've got fluid with particles in it that are active that are moving off their own steam so for example swimming bacteria or maybe inside the cell sort of cellular filaments that are moving around the fluid behaves in a different way than if it was just sort of passive molecules getting carried along and so researchers sort of need to study this and need to understand this this, this kind of fluid and how it moves and its viscosity and so they've picked as a sort of model these worms that they can then put in fluid, measure the viscosity of this worm solution and see what difference 
it having active wriggling things in it makes. That does make sense if these active things are having more of an influence on viscosity, but still, I'd keep coming back to, why worms? I think just because they're small and wriggly and cheap. But the important thing is that they tried it out with the worms, and it seems to work in the sense that they found that when the worms were active, the viscosity of the fluid was measurably different than when the worms were passive. So this could be a useful model. Oh, okay. So this could be like a way to study these active things in the future. Exactly. So they can actually control the worms. So for example, if they want them to stop wriggling, they um, add alcohol to the water that they're in. <laughs> um, these poor worms. Uh, and and they, they sort of become temporarily um, motionless. So they're able to... They're a lot bigger than self-elements. They're more controllable. So they can use this to maybe study the equivalent of what's happening inside cells. I never thought I'd be discussing worm viscosity on the podcast, but thanks for that, Shamni. And listeners, if you'd like more short snippets of science like that, but instead delivered to your inbox, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link to that and also the articles we discussed in the show notes. That's all for this week. There's just time to tell you about our latest mini documentary. It's all about how fake news and misinformation surrounding COVID-19 are spreading around the world and what we could do about it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.